Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Welcome, everyone, to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And Tane, we are in the middle of an unprecedented judicial emergency as we record this today. And we had a conversation that we would want to reach out to our folks and give them some thoughts and ideas and observations about how this pandemic has and will affect Georgia, the Georgia judicial system. Yeah, Wade, but we have no intention of talking about the pandemic itself or whose fault it is or how long the shelter-in-place order from Governor Kemp should re- should remain in effect. Yeah, you know, it seems like every podcast out there, that's the topic. Yeah, but Wade, you know, we've recorded all the previous episodes of this podcast at the UGA Law School. So uh, tell the people how it is that we're able to record this episode today. Yeah, we would never have been able to create anything without the amazing support of the UGA College of Law and specifically Mr. Jim Henneberger. That's right. He is amazing. And gosh, we miss him right now. Yeah, we really do. But with the university system closed indefinitely, we kind of doubted they were putting high on their priority list. How could we get the Good Judgment podcast an opportunity to record in the podcast studio in the law school? So we were able to obtain a grant that allowed us to purchase our own podcasting equipment so that we could take this show on the road. But Tane, you know, that's only half of the solution. Tell them about why we're not in the same place. Well, yeah. I mean, the worst part of this whole thing, Wade, is that uh, with this shelter-in-place order, uh, we couldn't find a single exception for podcast recording in the activities that are allowed under the order. So uh, we couldn't be together today. So I'm in my new home recording studio. Yeah, like all the players have. (laughs) And uh, I'm at my house, but I don't have any fancy recording equipment here, so uh, I'm being recorded from my cell phone. So we're hoping that the quality is satisfactory and we're going to rely on Steven Turner and Turner Up Productions to fix it in the mix. No parking, baby. No parking on the dance floor. I'm sorry, that just reminded me of some 80s funk. Anyway, let's go ahead, Wade. So, Tane, let's talk a little bit about how this pandemic has hit the judicial system. Um, You know, we're struggling with trying to keep ourselves from being exposed, trying to not bring that home to, in my case, my mom and my young grandson, trying to keep my office and courtroom staff healthy, trying to keep people who come in healthy, and it's been a it's been a real challenge. Yeah, not to mention, uh, you know, if there's anyone who wants to come in from the public who wants to attend court proceedings or something like that, we've we've had to figure out ways to accommodate all of that. So if we're being honest, we weren't ready for this. I mean, we've had meetings about pandemics and how to handle them in the judiciary, but we weren't ready for this. I don't know that anybody in the world was ready for this. Yeah, I think you're right, Wade. And I don't know how you started off, but the way we started off with uh, everything was kind of at a more basic level. I mean, we started off with some some really low-tech solutions to the initial problems that we were seeing. Tell the folks about what you did, and I'll share the pictures on, on the internet on the website at? GoodJudgePod.com. There you go. So tell the folks what yeah, you did. Sure. 
Yeah, sure. Um, and as Wade said, he's got some pictures of these. Uh, they're not great pictures, but they're um, they're just some pictures of inside our courtroom. And what we started off doing in the early days of uh, of this virus, which seems a really long time ago now, is I just took some blue painter's tape, and uh, it's kind of a masking tape, and I made areas in the courtroom where people could and could not go. Um, all of those fall in line with the regulations that we had been given to keep try to keep everyone six feet apart. So, for example, uh, we had one chair uh, at the defense table uh, at one end of the table, and the table's about six feet long. And so we marked it so that uh, somebody could sit at one end and someone could sit at the other end, uh, and they'd be six feet apart. Uh, we blocked off an area down the center of the courtroom to make it clear that people were to go either to the left or to the right in the courtroom. And um, we did the same at the prosecution table. They could One person could sit at each end. And then, for example, the first row of our uh, benches in the courtroom where observers can sit, that first row was blocked off so that no one could sit within six feet of the prosecution or the defense. On the second row, we literally taped it off so that there was one seat available in that second row in case somebody's mama wanted to come sit behind them and cheer them on during a hearing or something like that. Then the, the next row was blocked off. And then the row after that, uh, again, you could t- we had two people who could sit on there six feet apart. So we were really just trying to establish some lines where people could and could not be in the courtroom. We've also blocked it off uh, with tape so that no one could approach the bench, and we had a podium blocked off so that people could speak from there and and not approach anyone else. So we were really just trying to follow the guidelines that we'd been given, and as I said, there's some photographs of how we did that. We also, one other thing, Wade, um, we posted a procedures order uh, outside the courtroom, outside each courtroom that was open at that time, um, indicating how you were supposed to follow those procedures. So in other words, don't don't go beyond the tape. And we even said on, in the order, you could be subject to uh, a contempt order if you violate uh, this order of court. So that's kind of how we handled it in the first couple of days. You know, right in the beginning, we had been pretty dedicated to the DOC uh, video hearing project. So we did have some history with how to do that, but that was not a connection to our local jails. That was a connection to the DOC. And almost immediately the DOC quit transporting people, sort of shut it down a little bit. And so what we ended up doing is putting some, some, I guess, compatible computers. They weren't the same, but they were compatible in our local jails. And almost immediately we started having video hearings. All the judges were, I had been the only one doing it before then, but all of us started doing it almost immediately. But one of the things that we faced early is that we had a, an active defense lawyer test positive for COVID. He had been in court the day before he had been in the jail. He had been in the holding cells. And so not in the holding cells, but in that area where lawyers meet. And so it was, it was very real, very early for us. Now, luckily he has recovered, but it was, you know, we were all trying to figure out what, what do we do now? Well, yeah. And, 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 you know, I think everybody began to feel that kind of urgency uh, within a few days. Um, and, and that's when we realized that, hey, just taping off the courtroom isn't going to be enough. And uh, so we, you know, we had a lot of meetings like everyone else did. And we shared a lot of uh, 
a lot of insights and a lot of ideas with colleagues around the state uh, via emails um, just to try to figure out, hey, what's everybody else doing? Um, one thing I'll say that one of our colleagues did uh, over in Douglas County is they they had some laptop computers, some older ones that were sitting around that they weren't using. And they, uh, they ramped those up, took them out to the jail because they had um, video cameras uh, embedded in the laptops, and they they use those to uh, to hook into a system to be able to do some video hearings. And I thought that was pretty clever. Well, as we go through today, you're going to hear from both Tane and I some things that each of our circuits have done that sort of incorporated a lot of what you're talking about. Now, you know, when Justice well, Melton, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say the same thing you were. I think uh, as soon as uh, we all began to see the. Uh, magnitude of this, Justice Melton issued the first judicial emergency order and uh, required us to to, uh, present or perform only essential services. Now, had y'all issued a local emergency order right about that same time or not? Yeah, we yeah, we had Um, our our chief judge uh, seeing what the handwriting was on the wall. Um, was trying to give some guidance to folks who had active calendars. I mean, for example, the uh, the Thursday before Justice Melton uh, issued his order, I was supposed to have a you know hundred and something position criminal calendar coming in, and we had to do something about that because we knew we couldn't call all those people in. So you know, he issued that a first order, and I think that order sort of reflected the fact that. Nobody was doing video on any regular basis for anything of any substance. And that first order specifically said, with regard to matters not deemed to be essential functions, and that became sort of the buzzword or buzz phrase, I guess, essential functions under that statewide judicial emergency order. And they said that's all we were supposed to do because in all honesty, he had in his mind, and and I think we all did, court as we have done it since our grandfathers were going to court like we are right. want to do in, Some of in our Georgia more than others. <laughs> well, yeah, but then, you know, he issued the extension order on April 6th. I think it was April 6th. And he said in that order, because it had become obvious that everybody had ramped up in the space of about, I don't know, two, three weeks that anything that was not deemed essential parties, Judges, courts, everybody was encouraged to proceed to the extent feasible to use things like teleconferences and video conferences to reduce backlogs when the judicial emergency ends. Now, Tane, we're going to get avalanche when this thing's over. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, Wade. Um, and and we'll talk about that in just a second. But I, I do think it's I think it's appropriate to say one thing. Um, I I've got to give a shout out to our colleagues all across the state, um, in, in every level of court, not just at superior court level, as to how quickly they all moved to think outside the box to adapt to something that we'd never dealt with before and and, and something that we'd never even come close to dealing with before. Because, you know, within two or three days in my circuit and your circuit and circuits around us, people had come out with orders to try to figure out a way to have court in a completely different way, literally within a matter of a few days. So I I think it would, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't give a shout out to everybody for just being amazingly creative to keep our essential function moving moving um, during this very, very strange time. And on that same vein, I think a lot of the folks who in superior court would be called district court administrators and the staff at yeah. uh, the CSCJ, 
Council Superior Court judges, they were all about finding solutions, especially when they realized the number of circuits around the state that frankly did not have the support that you and I enjoy uh, from our local counties. And they didn't have the assets necessary to, to, to accomplish that. So, yeah, I think you're right to, to acknowledge some of the people who kind of became heroes, frankly, in the, yeah, in no the first days of this. So in Augusta, well, let's talk a little bit, yeah, let's talk a little bit about what happened in those early days, uh, Wade, and how y'all adapted. Well, what we did at first, and, and really, frankly, it's kind of been the way it's played out. We would focus on defendants whose status would change, and everybody came to know that to mean if you were going to go from being in a local jail to being out of jail, probation, not guilty, you know, bench warrant lifted, whatever. People And then people who were going to go from the local jail to the DOC. Now, people began asking, well, the DOC is not transporting and they haven't been sort of taking in new prisoners for a long time, which is understandable given what they're facing. But I also knew that if the sentence was already entered, whenever this thing ends, that won't be another one I need to do. You know, it, th- right. that, that will already be situated and the DOC can take them in however the DOC runs the DOC. Have y'all been, I've been having a hard time getting lawyers to come and participate on civil or domestic hearings. I mean, I've offered them, Hey, I'd be happy to hear your three hour custody case, but I can't get anybody to, to sort of take me up on it. What about you? Yeah. I think once we cleared the initial, um, you know, glut of cases to try to get people out of jail, because that was the main focus, you know, the sheriffs needed help uh, moving people, uh, because of their unique circumstances uh, that the jails, uh, you know, provide. Um, once we moved those initial cases, I think the the volume of cases that we were hearing dwindled. Um, and I don't know how you all did it over in Augusta because you're a three-county circuit. But in, in Cobb, what we did is we began a rotation, and we held court just in one courtroom every day so that we could make sure that it was clean, uh, so that we could, you know, provide all the video conferencing services in one place, um, so that we could do all of those things in one place. So we were we were having a rotation. So we had one judge who's basically the on duty judge all day, uh, each of those days, and we could have court and have anything basically that that popped up could be heard on those days. Um, once we cleared, once we used that system to clear the initial onslaught cases that we had. Um, I agree with you. I've, I've done some video conferencing. I've done some essentially pre-trials of cases or, or you know, things like that to help lawyers out. Um, but we haven't really had people beating down our doors or begging us to do civil or non-essential criminal cases. So we've been in this about six weeks. It seems like six years. And I think I have, I've handled a custody case. I mean, a full hearing on a custody case. Right. I've, I've handled a number of TPOs and, you know, criminal probation revocations, all that. We have to, right? And I'm thinking there was something else that I handled, but I can't recall right off the top of my head. But so it's been pretty limited. We're, we're handling some bond cases. I'm sure you'll yeah. be handling those as well. Absolutely. So, Tane, if you don't mind, you talked about initially using the painter's tape to mark off the room. Why don't you yeah. tell the folks about the, I don't know, what, what do y'all call it? The no-touch policy? 
Yeah, our no-touch document policy. And a copy of this is going to be also uh, on our website for you as well at goodjudgepod.com. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, we, have a, we started this policy really early because we realized that the procedure that everyone uses, for example, for a criminal plea, requires that the same document be passed between six or seven people's hands and be signed by all of them. And we just knew that that wasn't going to be a possibility. So tell the people, like, when, when you say that many people, so give just an example. You've got the defendant? Yeah, so, so think, think about this. So, so, yeah, you've got the defendant. You've got uh, defense counsel. You've got the prosecutor. Usually you've got maybe two prosecutors who are going to be touching that document uh, during the course of a hearing. Um, you've got the uh, the clerk, courtroom deputy clerk. You've got you as the judge. Usually you have a bailiff or a deputy or someone who's handing the document around to all of those people. Yeah, absolutely. So okay. By the time all of those people have touched it, you've usually had six or seven people who've handled the same piece of paper within a five-minute period of time. Now, we knew we couldn't do that because that was a great way of transmitting uh, the virus uh, the way that people were telling us at that point in time it could be transmitted. So we developed a policy where the only people who touch documents during a plea or during a revocation hearing are myself and the clerk. Both of us are wearing gloves. And how we do that is this. Each person, when they come in for a plea, uh, at the prosecution table, there's a clean copy of all the documents. When I say all the documents, I'm talking about the indictment, the Boykin Wright sheet, the sentencing sheet, the um, uh, uh, if there's something like a waiver of Fourth Amendment rights that's going to be signed in that case, all of those documents, there's a clean copy sitting at each table. We have the defense attorney uh, go over the Boykin rights and all the other documents with their client, either in the holding cell or downstairs. But we tell them, don't, don't, don't hand the documents back and forth. Just go over them with your client. You don't need to sign them. You don't need to write anything on them. Neither does your client. We will go over all of that in court. And then, and then the only person in court who touches any of those or who signs any of those documents is me. I ask on the record, is it okay, defendant, that I sign your name to this document now that I've explained it to you? Uh, he says, yes, I sign his name. Same with the attorneys, uh, same even with the, with anybody else whose signature needs to be on the document. And in that way, um, people don't, nobody touches the documents other than myself and the clerk with gloves on. Um, it, that, that also goes for the indictment way. I sign the indictments in those cases uh, on the guilty pleas because I couldn't find anywhere in the law that said an original signature of the defendant is required on the indictment as long as the plea is voluntary. Well, that brings up a good point. We probably need to sort of call time out and what we've done and look at a couple of legal issues. You know, we tell the joke all the time that the way we run court is probably the way it was run 50 plus years ago, 60 plus years ago. No doubt. And there are some things that we just do because of the way we've always done it. So let's start with the most basic. The right to confront witnesses is a criminal thing. That's a Sixth Amendment criminal thing. So it doesn't have any application in a civil case. You agree? Yeah, absolutely. Now, so we can conduct civil hearings. Oh, I know the other thing I conducted was a motion for summary judgment. But but we can, during the coronavirus and by video. Yes. But yeah. those kind of things can happen. Yeah, absolutely. In civil cases, 
witnesses, parties, even the court reporters can attend via video. And as a matter of fact, Wade, in my um, criminal hearings now, our prosecutors are appearing by video and our um, circuit defenders are appearing by video. Nobody's in the courtroom. They're, uh, they're all up on the video screen. We're doing the same thing. And so the way we handled it was like, okay, if you're going to introduce documents, any sort of exhibits, pre-mark them and email them to opposing counsel and the judge. As the judge, I would then forward them to my court reporter so everybody knows what plaintiff's exhibit one is. So if they talk about it with a witness in California like we had the other day, they literally were all looking at the same document, even if it's the second page of that document. And so all of that is being sort of shared in advance. And so that's a way to do it in civil cases. Now, if you'll notice, you know, wait, that's a that's a procedure I wouldn't mind continuing after this is all over with. Yeah, that, you know, that's something we do need to talk about, because there are a lot of things that we're learning the hard way here that we probably ought to keep in place. But we'll get to that in a minute. Right. Right. 9.2. Justice Melton got the Supreme Court to approve an amendment to that 9.2. When I say 9.2, what I'm talking about is Uniform Superior Court Rule 9.2 that says that in the body of the existing rule, it said that wherever the judge would ha judge was located had to be an open courtroom. The Supreme Court. Yeah, what, is that, what does that mean exactly, Wade? So basically, I had to be in a place where the public could come in. I couldn't be in my chambers. I couldn't be in my house. I had to be at a courtroom that was open and available to the public. Because of the logistics of this, the Supreme Court passed a an amendment that lasts as long as the judicial emergency lasts. And it says, during the judicial emergency, the public has to have a way to see the hearing, but the judge doesn't necessarily have to be in an open courtroom. And that was just sort of a nod to protecting the help of the health of the judges and the court personnel and the people who might want le legitimately want to attend. Yeah, so if anybody wanted to watch a hearing, we had to tell them we had to give them some sort of notice. And the notice that we use, we all have websites. Each judge in Richmond County, the, the IT department created us a, a website. And we literally post the notice that we're going to have a hearing in Smith versus Jones tomorrow at 2. It will be uh, played, I guess, or exhibited in courtroom, I don't know, 2C. And so anybody wanted to come in, there was a computer set up as a participant in the meeting, like on Zoom or WebEx. But we just yeah. turn their camera off and we turn their mic off because we don't need to see or hear them. They need to see or hear us. And all the other players were, were, were the little squares around the around the screen in either WebEx or Zoom. So and I'll tell you one thing. One thing we've done with respect to that also, Wade, we just have a we, in addition to doing that, we actually have a monitor outside the courtroom where we're conducting active court. Um, so that no one even needs to come in to check to see if it's time for their case to be called. Absolutely. Now, I know some of the Cobb judges were talking about live streaming to YouTube and Facebook, and then there was a whole big um, back and forth on some of our uh, chat rooms about who owns that and if somebody could manipulate that. Do you ever know what the outcome with that with that was? I think under certain circumstances, there are some judges who are still doing that. I think ultimately the decision was that the best practice was probably to do what you just said a moment ago, which is to have a computer open in a courtroom or to have a, a, 
a video open on a screen in a courtroom where members of the public could actually physically come in. So, folks, if you want to look at what the rules are concerning 9.2, criminal defendants do have a right to object. Civil civil defendants don't. The judge has to consider that objection, but that cannot be the end all and be all. Whereas in a civil case, excuse me, in a criminal case, they do have that right to object and that can thwart moving forward. The rule and the, I guess, amendment during the judicial emergency will be on our website at goodjudgepod.com. Hey, Wade, when you're conducting one of these hearings, let's say a criminal plea, what do you put on the record at the beginning of the hearing to indicate how the hearing's being conducted? I always indicate who's present. I always indicate that it's being taken down by our court reporter slash is also being recorded by video so that the players know it's being recorded. And if it ever comes back 10 years from now, we'll remember that this was during the coronavirus epidemic or pandemic. So I put that actually on the record. What do you do? Yeah, I do the same thing. I say I, I at the beginning of every hearing, I introduce it by saying it's being conducted during the judicial emergency declared by the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Um, I indicate that some of the procedures are going to be a bit different. And the fact that we're do, having some people appear by video may be one of those or that we're not touching documents may be one of those. But I always announce that it is in an open courtroom setting and how we're achieving that um, and that it's being taken down by a court reporter or, you know, again, however, we're achieving that as well. Now, Tane, I don't know if you recognize this, but did you know we can handle search warrants by video? Yeah, I saw that statute, 17-5-21.1, gives us a little bit of assistance on that. You know, our friends in Gwinnett County and magistrates across the state have been doing this for a while now, but we had a certain situation come up and a GBI agent needed a search warrant. We literally handled that by video. We probably did it a little old school because in order to get the signatures on the same page, she signed it. The agent did emailed it to me. I opened it on my iPad with the Apple pencil. I signed it and emailed it back to her to be included with the original documents. So, I mean, there's lots of ways to quote unquote, skin the cat. If that was something you're really trying to do. And if you don't know if it's not something you've done before, you know, this thing is going to teach us. We've got to get better at e-signatures. We've got to get better at e-filing. We've got to get better at all of these the video conferencing. We've got to do that. Hey, Wade, I want to ask you about another idea that I'd heard thrown around out there. What about conducting in absentia uh, hearings for felony cases? All right. The chief justice has a whole bunch of power and it, and it's really vast, especially, you know, during something like this, but he does not have the power to change the substantive law or to change the constitution. Our law is pretty clear that we have to go through a colloquy and I don't know how you do that without a defendant. I don't think that you can have a one, one way colloquy. So the, the case law is really clear that you have got to be able to establish that Boykin rights were gone through and there was a knowing and intelligent waiver. And that's got to be done by an in-person exchange. Now, the governor has the power to change some actual substantive laws during this emergency, but that's not something that's covered by the judicial emergency or the amended judicial emergency. So I take the position you just can't do that. Do you agree? Yeah, I do agree with you, Wade. That's why I asked the question. Um, so 
what about other things, Wade? What about split sentences? Like, what if we need to, uh, what if we need to put somebody in jail on a Senate on a, a case that we're taking a plea on, or on something else that we're doing during this period of time? What is uh, probation talking about, or what what are they saying with respect to how to do that? So the dilemma is that you have an inmate in in a local jail, and the whatever they did is deserving of of a split sentence. Let's say. Well, then most people are just saying, well, we can't do that because the DOC is not coming to get them. So let's not move it forward. And and literally this last week, I had a conversation with probation in which I said, look, if we sentence somebody to say two in and eight out, two years in confinement, eight on probation, right. immediately release them to probation to get them out of our local jail to help our sheriffs. Right. But on a date certain, Whenever that is, say August 1st, say that you really, you know, September 1st, whatever, they must report to the local jail to begin serving their two years. Now, I know what you're going to ask me, Tane. What? What person have I ever met that's going to report, right? <laughs> They're just going to well, go, hey, I'm out of jail. Certain penalties you can put in place that uh, that hopefully will achieve your desired result on that. Well, think about this. If you make it a special condition of probation that they report on August 1st and they fail to do so, a couple of beautiful things happen. Number one, the probation officer will be the one to file the probation warrant for violation of probation. Number two, if you make it a special condition, Tane, you know, what's the beautiful thing about calling something a special condition instead of a general condition? If it's violated, you can revoke the balance. So just by not reporting, that person is facing a 10-year prison sentence instead of a two-year prison sentence. That's why I think this could actually work. Well, and don't the federal courts do that every day? Yeah, but look at the volume. I mean, by comparison, (laughs) all, all of our buddies on the federal bench are very busy, but by volume, it's not the same thing. You agree? Sure. Trying to get you to buy into some of this before they all start raining down on me. I was going to say, don't don't pull me into your problem. Well, speaking of my problems, you all know that my wife is a probate judge. And you all know that across the state. Exactly. Mine too. And across the state, they are filing lawsuits suing probate judges, the governor and others about the non-issuance of weapon carry licenses. Now, I think we need to be careful here because some of our colleagues on the Superior Court bench and some of our friends on the federal bench are going to be hearing these cases. And this is really a hot button topic right now. But here's the problem, and I just want to make sure everybody understands. It's not that they don't want to issue the licenses. It's that they have to fingerprint them. So either the sheriff does it, who is refusing to do it, or a clerk employee has to actually physically touch the person and get their hand on the ink, what they call the inkless fingerprint machine to put the right amount of pressure so that they get the, a clean view of the fingerprints. This is an FBI requirement. This isn't just local. This isn't just state. But I'll tell you what really changed things is when um, the tragedy happened in Albany and Judge Nancy Stevenson passed away having contracted COVID-19. The probate judges were going to have an even harder time looking at their employees and say, look, it doesn't, we don't know their background or whatever, but if they come in, you need to fingerprint them by touching them. And that's really the dilemma. That's not the, it's not that they're not trying to work, but, but we won't go any further than that. That way we don't find ourselves in a weird spot. Now, Tane. Sure. 
locally we're having, when I say an issue, it's just a reality. The sheriffs have basically said they're not going to go pick up people for probation violations and for relatively low level um, holds, I guess, because they're so yeah. afraid of it. They've got the, the, the COVID situation at least managed in their jails and right. they don't want to introduce an unknown, you know, potentiality into that jail because that would just be a nightmare. Are y'all having any oh, yeah, of that? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think most, I think uniformly sheriffs across the state have taken a similar position, which is we can deal with the known. Uh, it's very difficult for us to deal with the unknown. And so, um, you know, I, I think those are things that are just going to have to sort themselves out when this crisis is passed, or at least when we get to the next phase of it. You know, we've talked about some of the difficulties asking lawyers to meet with clients in the jail. But, Tane, you know, you talked about looking up, does the defendant have to sign the uh, indictment with his own personal mm-hmm. signature? I'm not even sure there's a requirement of written plea forms. I don't, yeah, think, I don't think there is. It's always it's always been a, a, a really good backup or secondary, uh, you know, confirmation that things were uh, done knowingly. Uh, and, and I'm not sure that there is any requirement for that as well, as long as you have an open court proceeding with a record where the defendant waives those rights. And one more area we need to touch before we look into the, our crystal ball and look at the future. You know, Governor Kemp issued a clarification executive order that that made it clear that the the existing court orders were not addressed or, or affected or whatever the right word is by the executive orders and shelter in place orders that he had entered. Uh, we across the state, there was almost this immediate surge. I don't know if this was a topic on social media or something where people who had visitation rights suddenly said, what does this do to my visitation rights? And some people would say, well, I've got to be a reasonable parent. I can't send my child into a dangerous situation. Other people said, oh, you're going to be in contempt for not complying with the order that says I get every other weekend or spring break or whatever. And so all of that sort of just, just there was sort of this firestorm hit. Did y'all have that there? We did. I think it coalesced mainly because for almost all uh, circuits, this occurred right before spring break was about to occur for most of the school systems. And so there was this big question about, does the order that is controlled by the school calendar, is it still in place while school's not in, you know, while kids aren't going to school or while they're going to school virtually? So in our circuit early on, within just a few days, we issued a clarification order after a meeting uh, where we unanimously agreed that if there was an order in place that was controlled by a school calendar, the school calendar still controlled, even though school wasn't technically in session. And Governor Kemp's order sort of clarified that. So, Tane, let's turn now to the future. We've talked about the fact that when all this is over, whenever that is, that we are going to be avalanched and and we are going to be busier than we've ever been. And we're going to have to come up with some new solutions because we were already taking all we could do to to get all of the work we had through the sieve, through the through the through the hose or whatever. And now we're going to have even more work to get through that hose. Yeah, I think, Wade, you hit the nail on the head um, just a little while ago when you said this is going to be a great time for us to reevaluate why we do what we do. Um, We've done things the way we do them because that's the way we've always done them. And so, for example, one of the things that I'm really wondering uh, if it makes sense for us to continue to do is large calendar calls. You know, 
I mean, we've always done those because that's the way they were done when I started practicing law. But is that really a necessary function? Is it something that's helping us? I think a lot of those kinds of things we should reevaluate once this is all over with. Well, Tane, let's even go more basic than that. Are you going, what are you going to do, Tane, when a juror comes to juror excuse day and says, I have a compromised immune system or my spouse does, and I don't want to serve on jury duty. I'm not sure this is gone. And what do you do with that? Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I'm not sure that we know the answer to that exactly because, you know, we haven't come to that yet. But I I think we're going to have to take some of that on a case-by-case basis in the same way that we've always dealt with juror excuses or, you know, other things of that nature. And I think because we're we're plowing completely new ground, uh, we're going to have to deal with it in the way that seems to be the best way to deal with it. So, Tane, when... Does your circuit have what everybody's now called PPE, another phrase I've learned during the coronavirus, personal protection protection equipment? No, we don't have anything of the kind. We certainly can't get it in the volume that we would need in order to be able to conduct things like, you know, jury selections or things like that. And so I I think, think again, we're going to have to start thinking creatively about how we do things like jury selection uh, as we start to ramp back up. Uh, for these kinds of proceedings afterwards. You know, I'm probably renowned and not necessarily a great way, great way by some people for having quick jury selection. But I think that we're probably, I, I'm not going to feel comfortable, at least at first, bring in 50, 60 people in the room to ask them the general Vordire questions. I agree. I mean, we may have to do that in groups of 20, you know, and use we the same space. We may not get six feet, but we can get, I can just imagine if we have 60 people where you have eight, nine, 10 people on the same row and somebody in the middle coughs, you, you're going to be able to see every, every head in the room spin around. And it's just not going to be I good. We're going to have to, we're going to have to, to evaluate every single process and how we conduct them as we go back into this. And it'll also depend on some of the information that we have at that point in time, uh, that whatever testing tells us and, you know, what the CDC is telling us about uh, social distancing and those sorts of things in order to take all that into consideration in, in putting things back in place. You know, I think we've learned a good lesson with the ability to conduct court with people who are in local custody, not not just the DOC during this crisis. I would imagine that the sheriffs would be very appreciative of not having to lug however many people for arraignment over on a particular day to be in front of you for about a minute and then to lug them all back. That's not a great plan. So I think we'll probably have that. But Tane, let me ask you a question. This is a little bit of a throwback question. Do you remember back in the day when there was a thing that everybody called the rocket docket? I do. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, the I, think I, d- that may, I think that may come back. Well, I think it's almost going to have to, that if you have plea arena, plea agreements, I mean, one of us judges may be having to sit in the other courtroom while the other judge conducts a a jury calendar and just start sentencing people because we have got a lot to chew through that has been accumulated during this judicial emergency. Yeah, and I think it's going to be even more acute in the civil side because we've been trying to handle criminal um, and for the most part, at least in my jurisdiction, civil has sort of been on the sidelines during this time. You know, there's an ongoing conversation, Tane, and I don't want to go down this path, but I bet some of our listeners are thinking about it. What to do about grand juries and terms of court? Because yeah. ev- in every circuit across the state, when this thing hit, 
there was a grand jury impaneled during that term. That term for many of us has expired now. So do you bring that grand jury back? Do you have an obligation to do so? We know that the um, like speedy trial demands and whatnot, where the terms of court are very, very relevant, we know that they're told. And we're, we're going to put the information we got from the Supreme Court trying to further explain the tolling order. But basically, if somebody had 10 days left to do something on the day the judicial emergency was declared, whenever the judicial emergency is lifted, they're going to have 10 days to do that thing. So basically, yeah. it's as if this time didn't happen. Patain, you know, you said something when we were having a casual conversation off air, and it really struck me. And I want to steal your thunder. Tell people what you were saying about not having to learn the same lesson again. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we would serve our jurisdictions well by doing is putting some of this down in writing, setting it down for posterity. We did. We never thought we'd have a global pandemic in our lifetime. Nobody ever really seriously anticipated that, although we'd done some preliminary things about it. What I think we need to do is write some of this stuff down. And maybe it needs to become part of our judicial emergency plans or those plans that we're already required to have in place. But, you know, I might not be on the bench 10 years from now when there's, you know, COVID-20 virus uh, outbreak or something like that. And it would be worthwhile to write some of these things down for posterity's sake, uh, just so we have a plan if something else like this happens. That's a great idea, folks. Um, we are very thankful to be able to record, and thanks uh, to our, our our fine folks at Turner Up Media. They're going to hopefully make the sound quality better than what it appears to be as we're sitting here talking to one another. But um, let let us know if you are dissatisfied with the sound quality. We know Stephen will do his best, but if if, if you're having problems hearing us, let us know. And if you're just dis, if you're dissatisfied with the content quality, go elsewhere. But if you're dissatisfied with the sound, let us know. <laughs> yeah, we can do something about the sound. The content we're going to be stuck with, um, folks. We know you're struggling. We know that a lot of our colleagues on the bench um, are frustrated because they know what the other side of this is going to look like in terms of a workload. They know what the constitution and statutes are demanding of them and trying to accommodate all of those different concerns and interests is frustrating. Tane and I both have, have, have discussed it and, and we hope that you find some peace with this, that you understand we're all in the same boat and the really, you just keep paddling uh, to, to quote, hey, and to quote the coach, you just keep chopping. That's right. And if there's something that we can do that Wayne and I can help, or if we can help share ideas with you, don't forget, you can always contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And uh, we're always, uh, always happy to help out with anything we can. Until then, who are you again? I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And don't forget, the CDC says, always wash your hands after podcasting. Take care, everybody. Thank you, folks, for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically Jim Henneberger uh, for their technical assistance and providing the studio for us. Thanks, as always, to Stephen Turner and Turner Up Media, who does his best to get as much of our stupidity as he can. 
but he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to CSCJ, the Council of Superior Court Judges, for allowing us to handle NJO and their support in this project. Folks, these are our own opinions. They represent the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tane Kell and do not reflect the opinions of the Council of Superior Court Judges, UGA College of Law, ICJE, or really anybody else for that matter. You can contact us on our website at goodjudgepod.com or you can contact us on email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Folks, please rate and review our podcast on whatever listening app you may be using. It'll go a long way to help others find the podcast. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you feel like we need to say? No, that's all, Wade. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.